Chapter 67 Da Rosa Nadedigamos Agora Sampaio Bruno Os Cavalheiros do Amor Lisbon Guimarães 1960, page 155 When you assume an attitude of suspicion, you overlook no clue. After our fantasy on the power train and the tree of the Sephiroth, I was prepared to see symbols in every object I came upon. I had kept in touch with my Brazilian friends, and in Portugal just then, at Coimbra, a conference was being held on Lusitanian culture. More out of a wish to see me again than out of respect for my expertise, my Rio friends managed to have me invited. Leah didn't go with me, she was in her seventh month, and though her pregnancy had changed her slender figure only slightly, transforming her into a Flemish Madonna, she preferred to stay home. I spent three merry evenings with my old comrades. As we were returning by bus to Lisbon, an argument developed about whether we should stop at Fatima or Tomar. Tomar was the castle to which the Portuguese Templars had withdrawn after the King and the Pope saved them from trial and ruin by transforming them into the Order of the Knights of Christ. I couldn't miss a Templar castle, and luckily the rest of the party was not enthusiastic about Fatima. If I could have invented a Templar castle, it would have been Tomar. You reach it by ascending a fortified road that flanks the outer bastions, which have cruciform slits and you breathe crusader air from the first moment. The Knights of Christ prospered for centuries in that place. Tradition has it that both Henry the Navigator and Christopher Columbus belonged to that order, and in fact it devoted itself to the conquest of the seas, making the fortune of Portugal. The Knights' long and happy existence there had caused the castle to be rebuilt and extended through the centuries, so to its medieval part were joined Renaissance and Baroque wings. I was moved as I entered the Church of the Templars, which had an octagonal rotunda reproducing that of the Holy Sepulchre, and I was surprised to see that the Templars' crosses had different forms, depending on their location. It was a problem I had encountered before, when I went through the confused iconography on the subject. Whereas the cross of the Knights of Malta had remained more or less the same, the Templar cross had been influenced by periods and local traditions. That's why Templar hunters, finding any kind of cross in a place, immediately think they've discovered a trace of the knights. Our guide took us to see the Manueline window, the Hanela par excellence, a filigree, a collage of marine and submarine troves, seaweeds, shells, anchors, capstans and chains, celebrating the knights' achievements on the oceans. The window was framed by two towers, which were decorated with carvings of the insigne of the garter. What was the symbol of an English order doing in a Portuguese fortified monastery? The guide couldn't say. But a little later, on another side, the northeast, I believe, he showed us the insignia of the Golden Fleece. I couldn't help thinking of the subtle game of alliances that had united the garter to the Golden Fleece, the Fleece to the Argonauts, the Argonauts to the Grail, and the Grail to the Templars. Remembering Colonel Ardenti's narrative and a few pages from the Diabolical's manuscripts, I started when our guide showed us into a side room whose ceiling was gripped by keystones. They were rosettes, but on some of them was carved a bearded Caprin face, Baphomet. We went down into a crypt. After seven steps, a bare stone floor led to the apse where an altar could stand or the chair of the Grand Master. You reached it by passing beneath seven keystones, each in the form of a rose, one larger than the next, with the last set over a well. The cross and the rose in a Templar monastery, and in a room surely built before the Rosicrucian manifestos. I put some questions to the guide. He smiled. If you knew how many students of the occult sciences come here on pilgrimages, it said that this was the initiation chamber. 
Entering by chance a room not yet restored, which contained a few pieces of dusty furniture, I found the floor cluttered with great cardboard boxes. Rummaging at random, I uncovered some fragments of volumes in Hebrew, presumably from the seventeenth century. What were the Jews doing in Tomar? The guide told me that the knights had maintained friendly relations with the local Jewish community. He had me look out the window and showed me a little garden designed like an elegant French maze, the work he told me of an eighteenth-century Jewish architect, Samuel Schwartz. The second appointment in Jerusalem, and the first at the castle? Wasn't that how the message of Provins went? By God, the castle of the ordination mentioned in Ingolf's document was not the Montsalva of chivalric novels, the Avalon of the Hyperboreal. No. What castle would the Templars of Provins, more used to directing commanderies than to reading romances of the round table, have chosen for their first meeting place? Why, Tomar, the castle of the Knights of Christ, a place where survivors of the order enjoyed complete freedom, unchanged guarantees, and where they could be in contact with the agents of the second group. I left Tomar in Portugal with my mind ablaze. No longer was I laughing at the message Ardenti had shown us. The Templars, when they became a secret order, worked out a plan that was to last six hundred years and conclude in our century. The Templars were serious men. If they talked about a castle, they meant a real castle. The plan began at Tomar. And what would the ideal route have been, the sequence of the other five meetings? Places where the Templars could count on friendship, protection, complicity. The colonel spoke of Stonehenge, Avalon, Agartha. Nonsense. The message had to be completely restudied. Of course, I reminded myself on my way home, the idea is not to discover the Templar's secret, but to construct it. Belbo seemed disturbed at the thought of going back to the document left by the colonel, and he found it only after digging reluctantly in a lower drawer. But I saw he had kept it. Together we reread the Provan message after so many years. It began with the message coded by the method of Tritemius. Les transis invisibles séparés en six bandes. And then, Allah, ellipsis, Saint-Jean, transis, pi, charrette de fin, sees, ellipsis, entier avec Sahel, pi, ellipsis, les blancs montiacs, r, ellipsis, s, ellipsis, chevalier de Prouin pour la, ellipsis, j, n, c, six fois six en six places, chacun fois, Vingt à ellipsis cent vingt à ellipsis iceste et la donation à donjon li premier il y seconds juste issieux qui ellipsis pan it a refuge it a notre dame de l'autre part de l'io it a l'hôtel des peuplecains it a la pierre Trois fois six avant la fête, ellipsis, la grande pute. Thirty-six years after the Haywain, the night of St. John of the year 1344, six sealed messages for the knights with the white cloaks, the relapsed knights of Provins, revenge. Six times six in six places, twenty years each time, for a total of one hundred and twenty years. This is the plan. The first at the castle, then with those who ate the bread, then at the refuge, then at Our Lady beyond the river, then at the house of the Poplicans, then at the stone. You see, in 1344 the message says that the first must go to the castle, 
and in fact the knights were established in Tomar in 1357. Now we must ask ourselves where the second group went. Come on, imagine you're an escaping Templar. Where would you go to form the second group? Hmm, if it's true that those in the Wayne fled to Scotland, but why should they have gone to Scotland in particular to eat the bread? I was becoming a master of chains of association. You could start anywhere, Scotland, Highlands, Druidic Rites, Night of St. John, Summer Solstice, St. John's Fire, Golden Bough, because I had read about St. John's Fire in Fraser's Golden Bough. I telephoned Leah. Do me a favor, get the Golden Bough and see what it says about St. John's Fire. Leah was terrific at this sort of thing. She found the chapter at once. What do you want to know? It's a very ancient rite, practiced in almost all European countries. It's celebrated at the moment when the sun is at its peak. St. John was added to make the thing Christian. Do they eat bread in Scotland? Well, let me see. I don't think so. Oh, here it is. They don't eat bread for St. John, but on the night of the 1st of May, the night of the Beltane Fires, originally a Druid festival, they eat bread, especially in the Scottish Highlands. We've got it. What kind? They knead a cake of flour and oats and toast it on embers. Then a rite follows that recalls ancient human sacrifices. The bread's called bannock cakes. What? Spell it. She did, and I thanked her. I told her she was my Beatrice, my Morgan Le Fay, and other endearments. I tried to remember my thesis. The secret group, according to the legend, took refuge in Scotland with King Robert the Bruce, and the Templars helped the king win the Battle of Bannockburn. In reward, the king set them up as the new order of the Knights of St. Andrew of Scotland. I took a big English dictionary down from the shelf and looked up Bannock. B-A-N-N-O-C-K. B-A-N-N-O-K in Middle English. B-A-N-N-U-C in Anglo-Saxon. B-A-N-N-A-C-H in Gaelic. A kind of cake cooked on a grill or a slab made of barley, oats, or other grain. Burn is a stream. You had only to translate Bannockburn as the French Templars would have done when they sent news from Scotland to their compatriots in Provence, and you get something like the stream of the cake, or of the loaf, or of the bread. Those who ate the bread were those who had won at the stream of the bread, and hence the Scottish group, which perhaps by that time had spread throughout the British Isles. Logical, from Portugal to England. That was a shorter route, much shorter than Ardentes from Pole to Palestine. <laughs>